Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Now, those of us who meet here regularly will realize and remember that at the moment we are taking just that phrase about the wiles of the devil. Put on the whole armor of God that he may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We have seen over many weeks that the wiles of the devil are manifested in quite a variety of ways. But at the moment... We are interested in it chiefly as it shows itself in the attack upon the individual Christian and especially in the realm of his experience. We've already considered how he attacks the mind. We shall go on to consider, God willing, how he attacks us in the realm of practice, in the realm of the will, conduct and behavior. But at the moment, I say, we are looking at the wiles of the devil as they are trained upon the experience of the individual Christian. And even here, we are dealing with only one little section. We've already looked at the question of feelings, experience in general, various conditions in which it's difficult to determine whether it is spiritual or psychological or even physical. All this is but a manifestation of the wiles of the devil. It's not surprising that the great apostle puts it in this solemn manner. We need the whole armor of God, otherwise we are completely defeated. Nothing else can save us and deliver us. Very well then, now we are concentrating in particular at the moment on the wiles of the devil, as they are manifested in persuading Christian people to be guilty of what is called quenching the spirit. Now, you remember the specific exhortation in 1 Thessalonians 5.19. Quench not the spirit. Don't quench the spirit, says Paul. Despise not prophesying, etc., now, we began our consideration of this particular theme of quenching the Spirit last Sunday morning. We saw that it's not at all surprising that the devil should try to get us to do this, for after all, the Holy Spirit is the one who glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ, whom the devil hates with all the intensity of his evil nature. The devil's one ambition is to detract from the glory of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Moreover, the Spirit is the one who mediates salvation to us. It is his work to apply the great salvation which Christ has worked out in his life and death and resurrection and ascension and in his present work for us. It's the Spirit that applies it. So if the devil can succeed in, in persuading us somehow or another to quench the Spirit, well, he's succeeded very admirably. 
And so we've got to look at this. Now, we have seen that uh, there are certain tests which we can apply to ourselves uh, to discover whether we are guilty of quenching the Spirit or not. The general test, of course, is the New Testament picture of the Christian men. And uh, you see very clearly that the Christian men, the men filled with the Spirit, is a man who's got great light and understanding. The New Testament Christian understood what he believed. The Apostle John, writing at the end of his life as an old man in his first epistle, writes to those Christians who were very ignorant and unlettered people and had no education at all, most of them. He says, it's all right, you've got an unction from the Holy One. And you have no need of teaching concerning these matters. You know. Oh yes, when a man's filled with the Spirit, he knows what he believes, he knows the true doctrine, and he knows the false doctrine. You can differentiate, says John, between the true and the antichrists by the unction that you've got. So Christian people filled with the Spirit are never in the position that they don't quite know what they believe. They're never in the position that they don't care what they believe, as long as they're vaguely Christian. No, no, they've got light, they've got understanding. The eyes of their understanding, as the Apostle puts it in the first chapter of this epistle, have been enlightened, and they know certain things. Very well. There's one test. Do we know what we believe? Do we understand the way of salvation? Are we able to apply it? The man who's got the fire of the Spirit in him, he can do that. The Spirit is a fire. That's why we mustn't quench it. And fire gives this light. But not only that, we saw that it gives warmth also. The Christian is a warm-hearted man. He's got a warm spirit. There's a fire in him. And the fire ever radiates heat and warmth. There's fellowship with us as a true Christian. Well, now then, we've been examining ourselves in the light of uh, things like that. And there's praise in the true Christian. There's love, there's joy, there's this radiance, this warmth that the Holy Spirit of God always gives. Now what I'm suggesting is this, that if we are not aware of these qualities within ourselves, well then, if we are Christian at all, we are quenching the Spirit. That's the kind of thing the Spirit leads to, and the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, faith, and temperance, these are the manifestations of the activity of the Spirit within us. But now I want to move forward a bit this morning. There's another test which we can apply to ourselves, and it's an obvious one when you take this emblem of fire as representing the Spirit. And that's the one the Apostle gives us. It's the one John the Baptist gave, you remember. I indeed, he said, baptize you with water. But one mightier than I cometh, the lecher of whose shoes I am unworthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Fire. Here's the thing. Now then, fire is characterized not only by warmth and heat and light, but by power. Have you ever seen a house on fire? Or a great building on fire? Have you noticed the power of the fire? How difficult it is to hold it in and to keep it down. It advances, and with its power it destroys wherever it goes. The power that is always a characteristic of fire. Yes, and very much a characteristic, of course, of the Holy Spirit. Now then, here is a further test which we can apply to ourselves. 
Are we aware of the power of the Spirit within us? If not, we are quenching him. We are quenching the Spirit. Now, I don't take time to show you the extraordinary paradox, as it were, that's in this whole matter. The Spirit is the Spirit of God and is all-powerful. And yet, it is possible for us to quench the Spirit, to resist the Spirit, to grieve the Spirit. It's a great mystery, but it's perfectly true. You can't reconcile these things ultimately. But the teaching is quite plain, that in spite of his almighty power, he comes also, remember, as a dove, the gentle dove who can be offended. Quench not the Spirit, the power. How do we know whether the Spirit is working in us powerfully? Well, there are certain tests which are quite obvious. Take the one which we find in the next epistle, in the epistle to the Philippians in chapter 2, where the apostle says in verses 12 and 13, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God that worketh in you. And he works in every Christian. And he does so by and through the Holy Spirit. The fire, the power of the Spirit working in us. How does he do it? What does he do? Well, he prompts us. He urges us. He leads us. As Paul puts it there in Romans 8.14, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And this is a part of the power, the leading of the Spirit, the prompting, the urging. Oh, I've often quoted this before because though Wordsworth wasn't uh, thinking of the same thing, we can apply his words, we can appropriate them. I have felt a presence that disturbs me with the joy of elevated thought. Now, that's what the Spirit does. This kind of disturbance this disturbance of the Spirit within us, this moving, this urging, this prompting, a power dealing with us, not ourselves, but we're aware of it. Now that is something of the power of the Spirit. And then another way, of course, in which we can test this is that the Spirit always leads in this way to life and vigor and liveliness. The truly spiritual man, the Christian filled with the Spirit, is never a man who has to drag himself and force himself to do things. No, no, there's a power in him, there's a vigor, there's a liveliness. It's a life-giving Spirit. The contrast everywhere in the Scripture between the non-Christian and the Christian is the difference between someone who is dead in trespasses and sins and someone who's alive, who's been born again. It's inevitable. The, the, the other man, he's dead. He's lifeless. He knows nothing about God. He knows nothing about the life of the soul. He knows nothing about a spiritual energy. He doesn't live. He exists. That's the tragedy of the world this morning. People are talking about life. Seeing life. That's not life. That's existence. This is life. There's no life apart from God. There is no life apart from the Spirit. But the point is that everybody who is a Christian filled with the Spirit knows about this vigor, this liveliness. So he doesn't have to drive himself or urge himself or 
drag himself to God's house or to anything that he does as a Christian. No, no, there is this energy moving in him. Now, the great apostle was constantly making this point. Let me give you one other example of it before we leave it. Listen to him at the end of the first chapter of the epistle to the Colossians. Here he is, you see, he says, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working which worketh in me mightily. That's it. It's the same thing when he says, the love of Christ constraineth me. There was this energy moving him, carrying him along. It's always the characteristic of the Spirit. The Scriptures have been produced in this way. No scripture, says Peter in his second epistle, first chapter, you remember at the end, verses 20 and 21, no scripture is of any private interpretation. In other words, he says, it isn't a man's view of things, it isn't a man who's been studying and meditating and ruminating and cogitating and at last says, now I've worked it out. No, no, that isn't how the scriptures have come. How then? Well, holy men of God spake as they were moved, carried along, borne along, energized by the Holy Spirit. Now then, there it is. Now, we are to know something about this. Is your Christian life lively? Is there vigor? Or are you dragging yourself about? Lethargic and so on. No, no, that's quenching the Spirit. We are not meant to be like that. Well then, of course, the Spirit likewise in power gives us ability. Ability to live. Ability to witness. Look at these apostles. Look at them all after our Lord's death. Disconsolate, unhappy, miserable, sitting together, feeling utterly hopeless so much so that Peter, as we are told at the beginning of John 21, turned to the others and said, well, I don't know what you fellows are going to do. I'm going to fish. I go a-fishing. Hopeless. Miserable. Disappointed, unhappy. Look at the two men on the road to Emmaus. Listen to their conversation. We had thought, we had expected that it would have been he that would have restored the kingdom to Israel and so on. Now that's their picture. And you'd never have had a Christian church, you know, from people like that. They wouldn't have held together but a few weeks. It was a picture of utter hopelessness and despair. But then look at what happens later. Look at Peter, the one who denied his Lord but a few weeks ago. Look at him now standing up in Jerusalem and attacking the very rulers of the people. He said, look here, you've put to death the prince of life. He condemns them. He calls them to repentance. And he preaches Jesus and the resurrection. What makes the difference? It's nothing but the Spirit, the power of the Spirit. And the Spirit enables us to witness. Teaches us how to witness and gives us the ability to witness tells us what to say. Listen, look at that sermon of Peter's. See this great contrast, this ability, this power. That's always the characteristic of the Holy Spirit. People sometimes say, yes, well, I, I feel I'm a Christian, but you know, I, I, I can't help anybody else. I don't seem to know much. My dear friend, you've no right to be like that. It isn't a question of human ability. It's the ability given by the Spirit. It's the power of the Spirit. It's his ability given to us. And this is something that is proved so abundantly in the long history of the Christian church. Some of the humblest members of the church have been the means under God of helping some of the greatest. We've got the great example of 
that mighty men, that able, eloquent men, uh, Apollos, you remember, being helped by Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, we know the help that was given to many by a man like John Bunyan without education and of humble origin, and so on. That's been the glory of the history of the church. So there's no excuse. Have we this ability to live, to witness, and to pray? The Spirit leads to prayer always, and he gives ability in prayer. Do you find it difficult to pray, my friend? Do you find it difficult to pray in private? Do you find it difficult to pray in public? Well, you shouldn't. The Spirit energizes in this matter of prayer. We know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit helpeth our infirmities. That's it. The Spirit's energy, teaching us how to pray and leading us out in prayer, enlarging us in prayer. How much do we know about this Christian people? I'm concerned about this not only because of our individual experiences. We are concerned about it because of the whole state of the church. Why is the church so ineffective? Well, my answer is that she lacks this power. And that's why she isn't praying as she ought to be. She isn't interceding with the world as it is on fire, with these terrible possibilities of the whole universe being blown up. The church seems so lethargic. She hasn't got power. And it's largely because she doesn't know how to pray. And she can't pray because the Spirit isn't energizing the prayer. But when the Spirit comes, he moves us to pray. You read the history of all the great revivals in the church, and you'll find that in revival, people start praying who've never prayed in public in their lives, and they pray in private as they've never prayed in their lives. It's the Spirit coming in power, and he gives this ability in prayer. And the other thing I mention is the boldness, of course. We are told in Acts 4 that the authorities, when they observed the boldness of Peter and John, they saw that they were ignorant and unlettered and untutored men, but their boldness. What is it that gave it? Well, I've already answered. It's what happened on the day of Pentecost. Peter had got a kind of natural courage, but you see, face to face with death, it failed him completely, and he denied his Lord. But not after Pentecost. He was afraid of nobody. Boldness. And what they prayed for was that with all boldness they might be enabled to go on preaching this wonderful word. Well, now then, there it is. Those are some of the tests that we apply to ourselves. Quench not the Spirit. Are you quenching the Spirit? Those are the tests. What about the life and the vigor? What about the warmth and the radiance? What about the joy and the praise and the thanksgiving? Where there's a fire, it's there, it's warm, it's a life, there's vigor. And if it's not present in some way or another, we are quenching the spirit. And it's a very terrible thing to do. And our responsibility is very great. My dear friends, we've got to start with the church, not with the world outside. The trouble is in the church. The people are outside because we inside are not attracting them. We are failing to give them the impression that we've got the most glorious thing in the universe. We give a, an impression of lethargy and of slowness and of dullness. There seems to be more life outside. People are saying you can't get your young people these days. They find the church dull. Well, they shouldn't. The church ought to be the most exciting and thrilling place in the world. The fire, the power of the spirit. What is there comparable to this? There's nothing. Well, now then, I say, if it's not present, we are somehow or another quenching the Spirit. Which leads me to take up this matter. 
How, what are the ways in which we do quench the Spirit? It's a terrible thing, I say. Well, we can't afford to take any risks. We must examine ourselves in detail and see how it is that we are quenching the Spirit. It's obvious that we must be. The church wouldn't be as she is if we were not quenching the Spirit. The church would be thrilling with power and with energy and with warmth and with fellowship. And people would be rejoicing in it and ready to live or die for the church and for the Lord and the Master of the church. In what ways do we quench the Spirit? Well, let me note some of them. There are some who are guilty of quenching the Spirit by limiting in their very thinking the possibilities of life in the Spirit. They put a limit upon the operations of the Spirit. What am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about things we've already had to consider in working our way through this great epistle. Do you remember way back there in that first chapter? We read this in verse 13. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In whom also, after ye believed, or having believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. And you remember how he repeated that in chapter 4. He says in verse 30, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed until the day of redemption. That's it. The sealing of the Spirit, the earnest of the Spirit, the first fruits, the foretaste of the glory that is coming. Or take another thing that which we read of in Romans 8 this morning. You remember how the apostle puts it in verses 15, 16, and 17? God, he says, hath not given us the spirit of bondage again to fear. God has not given us that. We have not received again the spirit of bondage to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby ye cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself also beareth witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Do we realize that? Do we believe that? Do we believe in the possibility of this? Now, I am convinced that there are large numbers of Christian people who are quenching the Spirit unconsciously by denying these possibilities in their very understanding of the doctrine of the Spirit. There is nothing that I know of that so quenches the Spirit as the teaching which identifies the baptism of the Holy Ghost with regeneration. And it's a very commonly held teaching today. You'll see it in the books. They repeat it one from another. They say the baptism of the Holy Spirit is non-experimental. Happens to everybody at regeneration. So we say, oh, well, I'm already baptized with the Spirit. It happened when I was born again. It happened at my conversion. There's nothing for me to seek. I've got it all. Got it all? Well, if you've got it all, I simply ask in the name of God, why are you as you are? If you've got it, why are you so unlike these apostles? Why are you so unlike the New Testament Christians? Got it all. Got it all at your conversion. Well, where is it, I ask? No, no, my dear friend. It's wrong teaching. The apostles were regenerate before the day of Pentecost. 
Baptism of the Holy Ghost is not identical with regeneration. It is something separate. I don't care how long the interval. There's a difference. There is an interval. They're not identical. But if you say that they are, and you don't expect anything, and if you don't believe in assurance, if you don't believe that it is possible for you to know the Spirit of God, apart from you yourself, bearing witness with your own spirit that you are a child of God, if you don't believe in that as a possibility, well, obviously you haven't got it, and you're quenching the Spirit. And that's why so many Christian people are miserable and unhappy. They don't know this crying out, Abba, Father. They don't know anything about the spirit of adoption. God is some being away in the distance. They don't know him as Father, as loving Father. They don't know that there is children. They may believe it intellectually, theoretically, but this, Paul says, you know it. We haven't received the spirit of bondage again to fear. We are not to go about groaning and moaning and wondering whether we are Christians or not. No, 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 no. We were like that under the law. Then we were wretched and we cried out, Oh, wretched men that I am, who shall deliver me? But no longer. We have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry. And it's an elemental cry that comes from the depth of the personality. Abba, Father. Like a little child who hasn't seen his father for a long time. The father suddenly appears and the child runs to meet him and cries out, Father! Abba, Father. If you deny this as a possibility, you not only haven't got it, but uh, you're quenching the Spirit. And the witness of the Spirit is independent of ours. The Spirit beareth witness with our spirits, over and above, that we are the children of God. The devil doesn't want us to know this. He'd like to keep us trembling and unhappy and miserable and oh, how he succeeds. Even on this very doctrine of the Spirit, you see. Keeps us in a state of uncertainty. I wouldn't like to say that. I can't. Of course not. And the devil, the wiles of the devil have succeeded. Oh, he says, you know, you say that, that's presumption. You say, I am a child of God. I know God's my Father. The Spirit has testified. Enthusiasm, ecstasy. Be careful. That's not the humility of the Christian men. No, no, there are some people, as I've said before, who are so afraid of excesses and enthusiasm that they're only satisfied that they're Christians when they're really miserable. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. What blindness. What misunderstanding of Christian doctrine. I'm not here to advocate a glib, superficial, excitable effervescence. That's not it. I'm talking about the witness of the Spirit, which at one and the same time humbles you, leaves you in amazement, and yet fills you with a joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's it. Christian people, are you clear in your doctrine of the Spirit? Are you clear about the sealing and the earnest and the assurance and the testimony and the witness of the Spirit? If you've got any doubts about these things, you're quenching the Spirit. It's here. In the New Testament. But let me move on. There are, secondly, those who say, well, yes, I believe that's taught in the New Testament. But, you know, they say, it was only for those first Christians. That was the church setting off, as it were. Pentecost, wonderful. Never to be repeated. Oh, yes, it's there. You're quite right, they say. But it was only for them. I don't want to waste your time, nor my own. There's only one answer to that. This is what Peter said on the day of Pentecost. The promise is unto you 
and to your children and to as many as are afar off. Thank God it includes even me this morning. It comes down the running centuries. You, your children, your descendants, and your descendants and descendants, and on and on until the end of the age. And to the Gentiles, as many as are afar off. Thank God it's as possible today as it was then. Oh, yes, there are many who quench the Spirit in that way. But you see, they're answered by Acts 2.39. And not only that, they're answered by every great revival in the history of the church. Oh, no, this, this, this only happened once. You don't expect that to happen again, but it has happened again. Every revival is a repetition of the day of Pentecost. God... Blessed be his name has poured forth his spirit many times since the day of Pentecost. Read the stories of revivals. That's exactly what you get. People meeting together, not expecting anything in particular. Suddenly the Holy Spirit comes down upon them. They're aware of a power and a presence filling the whole building. They're taken up and out of themselves. That's it. That's a repetition of Pentecost. And it's happened in the lives of many individuals, still happens, thank God, quite apart even from revival, a general revival in the church. No, no, that's no answer at all. That is to quench the spirit again. Then there are others, number three, who get out of it in this way. Ah, oh, they say, yes, I admit it's there. I can't dispute that. It's there. But you know, they say, it's only meant for certain Christians. It's only meant for the exceptional Christians. It's only meant for some great saint. Because that is the terrible heresy, the lie taught by the Roman Catholic Church, who divides our people into two groups, the saints, the exceptional Christians, and the ordinary Christians, the laity. You don't expect anything there, of course. They haven't gone in for the, for the Christian life as a vocation. They talk about the religious and the laity. What a denial of New Testament teaching. The apostle addresses every single member of the church at Corinth as a saint. All New Testament Christians are called to be saints. Not just some whom you decide after many years to canonize and to call a saint. It's a denial of this teaching. Every Christian is a saint. This is not confined to certain special individuals. You cannot find a single text in the whole of the New Testament that says that this blessing of the power and the fire of the Spirit is to be confined only to certain people, exceptional saints or preachers or somebody exceptional whom God wants to do something through. No, no. It's here. It's to you and to your children and to as many as are afar off. Am I demonstrating my point that if we are in any one of these positions that we are guilty of quenching the Spirit? What do you expect, my friend? Oh, let me be quite direct and practical. Had you any expectation when you came to this service this morning? What kind of mood were you in when you came? What kind of condition were you in? What was your attitude towards what you were doing? Did you come here just because? Yeah, oh, it's Sunday morning, Sunday morning. Yeah, well, 11 o'clock we go to a church service. Then the rest of the program for the day. This is just an item in a program. Oh, well, yes, it's all right to sing some hymns, reading of the scripture, a sermon, and so on. Oh, well, that's it, and we've done it many times before. Tell me, is that the way in which you came? God have mercy upon you if you did. Let me be quite practical. How did I enter this pulpit this morning? Did I just come here because I was announced last Sunday as being here this morning to preach? 
Did I come here because I'm the minister of this church and the minister is expected to preach Sunday by Sunday? Is that the way I enter this pulpit? God forgive me, it often has been, but it never should be. We should all come here not only to meet with God, but to expect the gracious influences of his spirit. Regarding it as the highest privilege of life, not knowing what may happen, that at any moment he may come and the whole place be filled with his glory and with his presence and with his radiance. Christian people, do you expect that? Is your doctrine such that that can happen? Has it got place in your doctrine? If it hasn't, well, it's not surprising it doesn't happen. It's not surprising that the church is as she is. It's not surprising that the world is as it is. That's quenching the spirit. Our doctrine of the spirit and his operations must be perfectly clear. That leads me to my next point, which is the fourth indication of the ways in which we can quench the spirit. It follows from what I've just been saying. Formalism. Formalism. This is the greatest curse of the church. Formality. Formalism. I'm not here to criticize any particular church. It's true of all the churches, unfortunately. But formalism is seen at its zenith again in Roman Catholicism. The pomp and the ceremony and the circumstance and everything worked out to the minutest detail processions and this, and the people sitting back doing nothing, great performance taking place before them, formalism. The people don't enter into it, nothing happens. There's never been a revival in the Roman Catholic Church. There cannot be, there's no room left for it. Everything is controlled by men and by the service, worked out in detail, worked out to the minute, everything perfect and in order. And there are those who imitate that. In all the sections of the Christian church, I throw out a question for your consideration. Is a liturgy compatible with the freedom of the spirit? Now, I know there's an answer to that, and I give it myself immediately. The Holy Spirit can even use a liturgy. He has done so. He can break through it even, but he has to break through it. The more set, formal, mechanical, repetitive your service, the less opportunity is there for the Spirit. You read church history in the light of this proposition I'm putting before you, and you'll find it's very illuminating. Don't misunderstand what I'm about to say, but I have a feeling that the Christian church today is dying of dignity, dying of decorum, with our beautiful, perfect services. But oh, where's the breath of the Spirit? Where's the power and the fire of the Spirit? Dignity. Decorum. We are so concerned about this and so self-conscious. And we're all unconsciously imitating that church to which I've already referred, in which there's never been a revival and which is still opposed to reformation. Everybody's imitating us in various shapes or forms, processions in free churches, nonconformist churches, and all the great dignity. You know, it was when this dignity and decorum and scholarship and learning and culture and so on came into the church about the middle of the last century that the Holy Spirit seemed to be withdrawn. Why? Well, they were quenching the Spirit. Formalism is always the greatest enemy 
of the power and the life and the freedom of the Spirit. But of course it not only applies to services. This happens often in the type of life which we live. There's a terrible danger, you know, of Christian people being turned out like postage stamp peas in a pub. All of them are the same. Ah, oh, they're converted, they're given this teaching, there they are, they begin to go round, and they become set and smug and glib and know the phrases, know all the cliches. But there's no life, there's no power, there's no freedom. They've just become formal Christians. Just another one added, and all so much the same. Now, I put this very urgently to your consideration, beloved Christian people, because it seems to me to be the major problem confronting the church today. It is a simple fact which can be proved statistically, that the so-called working classes in this country and in most other countries are outside the Christian church. We are not touching them. Thank God there are such people in this service this morning, and I do thank God for that perhaps more than anything else this morning. But speaking generally, that is not true. Our churches are filled with people who belong to a certain social class, and it's an inbreeding in that circle. We don't get outside it on either side as we should. What's the matter? There's something wrong. This is formalism. This is a set type. And there's no such thing in the New Testament. Here there are all types and kinds. And so it has been in every period of revival and of reformation. No, no. This can come down upon us even in our personal lives. And it leads, of course, to a dislike of being disturbed. Oh, yes, our Christianity has a place in our program. It has a part in our life. We believe in doing this, and we do it, and we thank God that we are as we are, and quite unconsciously we become Pharisees, we be because we had subconsciously thank God not only that we are as we are, but that we are not like those other people who are still outside. And, and on we go in this smug, set, glib, formal way, and we don't want to be disturbed. We don't feel there's anything further for us. That's why we don't like the teaching concerning the baptism of the Spirit. That means that we are not perfect. After all, we thought we were. The liberals and the modernists were the people who were wrong and the people who were right outside. But now we begin to see that we need something and we don't like that. And we fight against it and that's quenching the Spirit. If you are fighting against the New Testament doctrine of the possibilities of life in the Spirit, you are quenching the Spirit. Because you're afraid of being disturbed. You're afraid of what it may lead to. But all that is quenching the spirit. And that leads me to another. I've already mentioned it indeed. The fear of excesses. Some people are so afraid of the excesses of which some people are guilty. And I'm not here to say that they're not excesses. They are. And I don't defend them. They're wrong. It's the devil, as I showed you last Sunday, pressing people too far on that side. But you mustn't be so afraid of excesses that you go to the other extreme and quench the spirit altogether. You say, I don't want to make a fool of myself. All right, it's quite right. You shouldn't make a fool of yourself. But be very careful, my dear friend, that in your fear of making a fool of yourself, you never do anything at all. And you're just a useless Christian. That's what's happening to so many. Fear of excesses. I recall an incident in my own experience a man put a question in a fellowship meeting which I used to hold in a church to which I belonged. And he was the type of man I'm describing. And I used to ask for questions at the beginning of the meeting. And this man got up and asked a question. And he said, 
He said, I'm interested in that uh, statement in the fourth chapter of the epistle to the Ephesians. Let your moderation be known unto all men. And knowing my men, I knew exactly what was in his mind. He had a feeling, you see, that some other members of the church were going a bit too far, taking their Christianity too seriously. They were coming to several weeknight meetings in the church, and they were living for this thing. Now, he felt this was going a bit too far, and he thought he'd found a text. Let your moderation be known unto all men. He was one of these moderate Christians. He was balanced. He didn't go too far. Yes, but unfortunately for him, he didn't know the real meaning of the text. The authorized version is not a true translation there. He didn't know that uh, it really means magnanimity. Self-control, in the sense that you don't lose your temper. It means forbearance. But you see how the devil had come in. He thought, he provided the men with a text, let your moderation, that's the right kind of Christian, the man who doesn't get excited about it, the man who's always moderate, that's the man. The devil is an angel of light giving him a wrong translation in order to justify his quenching of the spirit. Ah, but this has happened not only in individuals like that. You know there's an account in the life of Jonathan Goforth, that great Canadian missionary who was used of God in revival in Korea about 1905 and 6. It is said that when he was passing through this country in 1906, the authorities responsible for a certain well-known convention hesitated long and seriously whether they'd ask him to speak because they didn't want the kind of thing that had been happening in Korea in their convention. It's in the official biography. You can read it for yourselves. The life of Jonathan Goforth by Mrs. Goforth. And he was given to understand that he was now not in Korea but somewhere else. Now, my friends, is that not quenching the spirit? Why should the program, the timetable, be upset? Why must we say that the dignity must never be interfered with? Oh, God have mercy upon us. The fear of excesses is probably leading more people today to quench the spirit than any other single factor. Then another way for me to finish is this. If you don't respond to the spirit, you are quenching him. There's a hymn that puts it like this, Saviour, while my heart is tender, I would yield that heart to thee. Oh, if he does come and in his gracious influence give you tenderness of heart, don't resist him, my dear friend. Don't let it happen to you as it happened to the bride that we read of in the Song of Solomon. Do you remember that extraordinary incident that's described there? Let me read to you a few verses out of the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, beginning at verse 2. I sleep, but my heart waketh. It is the voice of my beloved that knocketh, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled, for my head is filled with dew, and my locks with the drops of the night. Then she replies, I have put off my coat. How shall I put it on? I have washed my feet. How shall I defile them? My beloved put in his hand by the hole of the door, and my bowels were moved for him. I rose up to open to my beloved, and my hands dropped with myrrh, and my fingers with sweet-smelling myrrh upon the handles of the lock. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had withdrawn himself and was gone. 
My soul failed when he spake. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called, but he gave me no answer. Oh, let that be a lesson to us. When he comes and speaks, when he brings his endearments, puts his hand, as it were, through the lock of the door, don't answer saying, I can't now, I'm tired, I'm weary, I'm in bed, I can't get up again, I can't put my clothes on, I can't put anything on my feet, or I can't walk with any, without anything on, I'll defile my feet, and I'll have to wash them again. Oh, don't resist him when he comes. Receive him, put everything on one side, welcome him. When you feel the Spirit dealing with you, calling you to repentance, rebuking you of a certain sin, listen to him, thank him, respond to him. When he comes suggesting renewal, reformation, when he urges you to Bible study, to prayer, work, whatever it is, don't quench him, don't resist him. Oh, open the door at once and open your arms. His visits may be rare. Well, look forward to them, seek them, respond immediately. If you don't, you're quenching the Spirit, and you'll have that unhappy experience of when you are seeking him, you won't be able to find him. When you're on your deathbed and are looking for him, you won't be able to find him. You'll be in a bit of trouble when you're dying. You won't know him. My friends, don't resist him, nor his offers, nor his overtures, but rather welcome them with open arms whenever they come. And the last way in which we are guilty of quenching the Spirit is that we don't stir up the gift that is in us. We don't stir up the fire. You know any fire. It gets filled with ashes and so on, and you have to rake it now and again. And if you don't, your fire will go out. Get rid of the ashes. Paul puts it like this in writing, you remember, to, uh, to Timothy. He tells him, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. And you've got to do it. You can translate that like this. You, I exhort thee, says the apostle, to fan the flame or to stir into flame. Get hold of a bellows. Get hold of a poker and do a bit of a raking. Is the warmth going down? Is the, is the power going down? Well, very well, get rid of the ashes and the dust. Fan it into flame, men. Wake up. If you don't, you're, you're being guilty of quenching the spirit. Laziness. Laziness. Contentment with the little that we've got. Not adding more fuel. Not giving an airway. Not giving opportunities for the spirit. The more you do, the more he'll come. The more you stir yourself, the more he'll stir you. This is the law of the spiritual life. And that's another very common way in which people are guilty of quenching the spirit. They don't give him the opportunity. They don't make the airway. They don't stir up fan into flame again. The gift which God in his infinite grace has given to them so freely and so liberally. Well, there we must leave it. Those are some of the ways in which we are all guilty of quenching the Spirit. Oh, what fools we are for our own sakes. But think of what it means to the church. Think of what it means to the world. The greatest of all needs today is the flame, the fire, the power of the Holy Ghost in individual Christians and in the church as a whole. Beloved Christian people, quench 
not the Spirit, but rather seek him. Make room for him. Make way for him. Yield yourselves to his gracious influences. Amen.